6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Lamentations, chapters 1 and 2. Well, we're going to explore one of the most moving, one of the most emotional books in the entire Bible, the book of Lamentations. And so in undertaking this, let's do something radical. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the word that you have given us. And we thank you especially for the words of Jeremiah in his book, The Lamentations. We pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit, you'd open our hearts and our lives to the lessons here as we commit ourselves, not just for this hour, but our very selves to you. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Book of Lamentations. One of the difficulties in approaching this book is we sort of have to take for granted you've just finished the book of Jeremiah with all its complexities and historical background. So we'll try to profile some of that to give us a better feeling for what we're getting into here. Jeremiah is one of our most revered prophets in the Bible, one of the most direct writers. He is also very autobiographical, so we know a great deal about this guy. He is not only a great writer, he's a model for us to follow because we're going to find him very deeply spiritual and very uncompromising in his situation facing the kings, five kings that he's going to be facing in his career. He's uncompromising with himself, and he's uncompromising with regards to his nation. And uh, we're going to have some painful lessons, I believe, that are going to be applicable to our own predicament here in our country. His style is very different than Isaiah's. Isaiah is very elegant, very lofty. He has probably the most extensive vocabulary in the Bible. A fabulous writer. Jeremiah is a little different. He's very direct, very simple. He uses a lot of nature as idioms. Very vivid, very incisive, but fortunately very clear in what he's saying. He uses a lot of poetry in his writings in general. And this particular selection we're going to look at is actually a collection of five hymns, or five poems in any case. He is called the weeping prophet. Tender, sympathetic, certainly not aloof or distant, very involved. And he continually expresses his deep anguish of soul. You will feel the very fiber of his being that even comes through the translations that we're victims of. The book of Jeremiah has about 66 passages from Deuteronomy in it, and also references to Job and Psalms. He also has indebtedness in the minds of many to Hosea. He is quoted over 50 times in the New Testament, and over half of those references are in the book of Revelation. He's regarded by some scholars as the greatest spiritual giants of all time. And that's quite a statement held by many knowledgeable writers about Jeremiah. From about 800 B.C. to about 650 B.C., there were a lot of prophets opening up. Zephaniah, Obadiah, 
Also a prophetess by the name of Hulda is very prominent during the days we're going to be exploring here. These were all contemporaries of Jeremiah in Judah. And during the captivity of, in Babylon, there were three major prophets, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Jeremiah. Daniel was deposed as a teenager in the first siege, and Ezekiel was deported in the uh, second siege. And there are about 18 points of contact, if you will, between Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So this is, they were all contemporaries, all faced with the same uh, geopolitical predicaments that we'll be exploring here. Nahum and Habakkuk were also contemporaries approximately of this time. Jeremiah's ministry spans the reigns of five kings. A couple of those were just for three months. They, were, they weren't around long enough to do too much damage. But three of them are very important. The other two are more secondary, but we need to understand, especially the second of those. And these kings came from an apostate background. The previous kings were idolatrous, and there was a reform under Josiah that we'll explore. But one of the things that happens during this time, they discover a copy of the Torah in a storeroom that had somehow survived Manasseh's attempt to wipe them all out. Uh, Hezekiah and, and uh, Manasseh preceding to Josiah, which is the area we're going to focus on. But the discovery of the Torah has a big impact on the times. And so we have Hezekiah, we'll start with him, prominent in the days of Isaiah, about 726 to 697. He's followed by Manasseh, who's bad news. He tried to wipe out Judaism. He's followed by a young Josiah, very key in our profiling here. And then he's followed by a group of bad apples, Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, who also is known as Jeconiah or Coniah. And even though he's only reigning for three months, some interesting things happen under his watch, if you will. And it's finally we get to Zedekiah, who is the last of the line before the, that actually leads to the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of Jerusalem, which is the primary focus of the anguish of Jeremiah's writings. Hezekiah. And then Manasseh. Now Manasseh is violently apostate. He filled Jerusalem with blood border to border, as God himself describes it in 2 Kings 21. It's during this time that the Levites, to protect the Ark of the Covenant, apparently remove it from the Holy of Holies, from the temple, in fact, from Jerusalem, in fact, outside the country, seeking refuge under Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Again and again, during this whole geopolitical period, we'll see Jerusalem try to get protection under Egypt. And that, in the context of the situation, well, it was obviously unsuccessful. So we'll go through that as we go. Then we get to this young guy, Josiah. He reigned from 639 to about 609. He reigned for about uh, 10 years, and then Jeremiah is called as a prophet. And uh, he was about 20 at the time. And so they're all like contemporaries, if you will. But Josiah took the throne very young. He was eight years old, and he reigned for 30 years. He's a good king. Started very young, did a remarkable job. Now, up until his reign, Assyria had been the primary dominant power in the region. And it was Assyria that finally took the northern kingdom and uh, captive and, and uh, in fact, uh, destroyed it. They not only took it captive, but they distributed it. It no longer had an identity. All the previous kings were, had increasing amount of idolatry in their patterns. When Josiah takes charge, God calls him to undertake reforms. And while this is going on, Babylon is rising in power to challenge Assyria. 
both Babylon and Egypt are anxious to unseat the dominance of Syria. And we'll see those politics unfold here in a little bit. And so because of the tensions between Babylon and Egypt applying for Assyria, Judah is the, the remaining part of the nation of Israel is uh, getting a little more freedom. So there's more tension brewing between Assyria and Babylon. So there's more uh, opportunity for Judah to rid themselves of the Assyrian practices. So about six years into Josiah's reign is that he seeks the Lord. And he, his reforms begin about four years later. So he discovers that during his reign, the Torah is discovered. He reads it. He discovers how far they've fallen. And he undertakes a major reform and a major celebration of Passover. And he instructs, the in Second Chronicles 35, he instructs the uh, uh, Levites to bring the ark back and put it in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't say they complied. In fact, the record shows that they apparently had sought refuge under Pharaoh Necho, and they leave it there, and there's a whole history there that we'll recount on another occasion. But So the copy of the Torah is a major milestone spiritually during the reign of Josiah. And the reforms that he institutes are all detailed in Second Kings 22 and 23. does a pretty good job, but they're very superficial. They don't take deep root. So in his reign, we have at the, the, the fall of Jerusalem, then Nineveh falls to Babylon, the copy of the Torah discovered. So they're subservient, you see, under Babylon, but they're not all deported. They still have the city, if you will. It's interesting that in Second Chronicles 35, we find Josiah as part of that reform, asking the ark to be brought back. They aren't, it hasn't been brought back, so Josiah attacks Pharaoh Necho. Now, this is very strange. Uh, scholars are very puzzled by this because Pharaoh Necho is attacking Assyria. It's starting to, Assyria is starting to get weaker. He's trying to pick off some assets. Josiah goes up against Pharaoh Necho, which is strange politics, really, because he's the enemy of their enemy. In fact, Pharaoh Necho is surprised. He says, what are you doing? I'm doing what God told me to do. And there's a whole aspect behind that. Josiah ignores that, goes against him anyway, and gets killed. And that ends as, obviously, uh, he dies at Megiddo. Anyway, it's under this background that Jeremiah is emerging as a prophet. And Jeremiah, through all this crossfire, never lets go of the fact that Judah is sinning and God is going to use Babylon as his instrument of judgment. That's his theme from the beginning, and he sticks to that through all the crossfire that he inherits from that position. And he admonishes them to stay out of the politics because they're constantly trying to get away from Babylon, using Egypt as a resource, etc., and God uses their enemies to bring about His judgment. So Jeremiah is called about 629 B.C. And it's about 17 years later that Nineveh finally falls. The Assyrians actually fall. There are three major powers at this time. Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. And they're all fighting each other in various ways. But the growing power in this trio is Babylon, which eventually dominates and becomes the primary power in the region. And the southern kingdom was undergoing some reforms. But the northern kingdom had, had fallen to the Assyrians, and they're starting to find pressure from this rising power. Prior to uh, uh, Jeremiah, Assyria, the dominant power, has taken over the northern kingdom. Anyway, Josiah dies in 625 B.C., Nabopolassar, that's the king of a region, he becomes the king of Babylon. His son, Nebuchadnezzar, is a marvelous general and really establishes it. By 612, he's gotten strong enough to destroy Nineveh and the capital of the Assyrians during Josiah's reign. Pharaoh Necho begins to attack 
Assyria in 609 BC. And that's when Josiah takes up arms against him and he tries to warn Josiah who doesn't listen. And of course, Josiah gets killed at Megiddo. Nebuchadnezzar, technically it's Nebuchadnezzar II, his son defeats Pharaoh Necho at the famous Battle of Karshemesh near the Euphrates in 605 BC. Babylon now rules the world. They're the dominant power. Following Josiah is Jehoaz, and he is on the throne for three months. Jehoiakim follows, and in turn, Jehoiachin. You're going to need to keep those three straight. After Josiah, we have Jehoaz, which is only three months. Josiah was very popular, but with his death, the people are really upset, and they take matter in their own hands. They set Jehoiahaz on the throne, and uh, he's, not, he's the son, but not the oldest son of Jehoiahaz. He's only, he reigns only three months. That's why we don't find much about him in scriptures. He tends to be anti-Egypt, pro-Babylonian policy, which, of course, Pharaoh Necho, the emerging power, doesn't care much for. So Pharaoh Necho is able to affect four things. He deposes Jehoahaz, takes him to Egypt, exacts tribute from Judah, and sets the oldest son of Josiah, who happens to be Jehoahaz's half-brother, on the throne. So at the moment, Pharaoh Necho, and who incidentally is the pharaoh of Egypt, but he's actually Ethiopian, is a dominant player in, in the scene. So the oldest son of Josiah is... Uh, put on the throne. His name is Eliakim, actually, but Pharaoh Necho changes his name to Jehoiakim. And uh, that's all in the Second Kings. And so it's at this, during this period, we have the Battle of Karshemesh, the fall of Assyria itself, and the first of three sieges of, of Jerusalem. And this is the one in which Daniel is deported as a teenager to Babylon. But it's, uh, Jehoiakim reigns for about 11 years. And this gives Jeremiah his biggest trouble They're on the opposite ends of every subject, whether it's religion, politics, whatever. Jeremiah is calling out for reforms, and Jehoiakim chooses to ignore him. It's his second tier of lieutenants that really are instituting the policy. Jeremiah tries to point out that God is raising Babylon to judge Judah. That's not a popular message for him to sell. He's regarded as a traitor, especially by the rival false prophets, if you will. Jehoiakim wants to resist Babylon and play intrigues with Egypt. So Jehoiakim is the worst, most ungodly of Judah's kings. That's quite a distinction. And he's a bloodthirsty tyrant. He's the enemy of the truth. He's uncaring relative to the worship of the God of Israel. But other than that, he's okay. <laughs> no, he's really bad news. And he extracted exorbitant taxes, forced labor without pay. So his 11-year reign, he sponsors idolatry, widespread injustice. And so this is the environment in which Jeremiah is sticking to his guns, preaching what God has told him to preach, that to recognize, just acknowledge, that even though it's Babylon, their enemy, God is using them as a form of judgment against their apostasy. So anyway, Jehoiakim is the inveterate enemy of God and His Word, and therefore the determined adversary of Jeremiah. Now, he has a revolt, and that's unsuccessful, and that leads to the first siege of Nebuchadnezzar, because the Nebuchadnezzar's on the rise here. So during this whole time, Jeremiah is persecuted, plotted against, maligned, and finally imprisoned. He's actually thrown in a dungeon. And the King Jehoiakim destroys his written prophecies. That explains a great deal, because they were replaced by he and Baruch, and that's why one of the reasons that scholars notice that the book of Jeremiah is very gerrymandered. It's not chronological, it's in pieces. But in all this time, Jeremiah does never, never swerves in his commitment to God. He's very unpopular, a very deep-feeling patriot, 
and uh, has to watch over the sin and the destruction of his beloved city and the demise of the nation. Well, that gives rise to Jehoiachin. Now, Jehoiachin has two other names encountered in Scripture. He's also called Jeconiah or Coniah, where you leave the word God out of his name, making it Coniah. But the point is, he's also bad news. In fact, he is such bad news that God pronounces a blood curse on he and his descendants. That is declared in Jeremiah 22, 30, one of the most important verses in Jeremiah that you want to be aware of. Because it, in effect, God decrees that none of his seed will ever prosper or sit on the throne in Judah. And it's interesting because we know from Genesis 49 that God's committed to having the Messiah come from the royal line. And here there's now a blood curse on the royal line. That would seem to be a paradox, a contradiction, what have you. And yet uh, the way out of that box canyon is a virgin birth. And that's another part of the story. But we also, that leads to the second siege of Jerusalem, and that's the one in which Ezekiel is also deported to Babylon. Jehoiakim reigns from 609 to 597 when the Battle of Karshemesh takes place, and Nebuchadnezzar succeeds in defeating Pharaoh Necho, and then that was the first siege. Just to get the sieges straight, there's three different sieges, and the first siege is the one that the nobles, and Daniel and so forth, Daniel was in the noble line, by the way, and they get deported. Jehoiachin is so evil that God puts a blood curse on him, as I mentioned, and then Jehoiachin intrigues and tried to adopt a pro-Egypt policy against the Babylonians. That doesn't go over very well with the, the emerging big gorilla on the block, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And that leads to the second siege of Jerusalem, and that's the one in which Ezekiel is now deported. So we in Babylon, we now have Daniel and Ezekiel. In Jerusalem, we have Jeremiah. Jehoiakim is replaced by his uncle, actually, Zedekiah, who reigns for, for about 17 or 18 years. Now, he also engages in pretty stupid politics because he intrigues with Nebuchadnezzar's enemies. It's rather than yielding as Jeremiah is telling him to do. He says, if you don't yield, God's going to destroy Jerusalem. They're subservient, but Jerusalem's still there. They'll get clobbered. Zedekiah, his ego is fed by his first-tier lieutenants, and he also intrigues against Nebuchadnezzar. Big mistake. So he had Nebuchadnezzar by now has had enough of the whole thing. He lays the third and final siege of Jerusalem levels the city, takes the people captive, destroys the temple, and appoints Gedaliah as governor. So that's the geopolitical profile. Now, Jehoiachin replaces Jehoiakim. He, is, he appears as Jeconiah, as I say, or also Kaniah in different passages. And the teenage Jehoiachin is also a wicked monarch, another one of these guys. Reigns only three months, but during that three months, he's earned some real notoriety. And it was his father's rebellion that really leads to the the second siege. And so they finally capitulates, exiled to Babylon with many nobles. And this here where the temple is plundered and Ezekiel is taken captive. Jehoiachin is exiled to Babylon for 37 years and enslaved there. And he's finally released by a son's successor to Nebuchadnezzar. See, Belshazzar, as you always read about in Daniel 5, really isn't Nebuchadnezzar's son. He says his grandson. And they don't have a word for that in the Aramaic and what have you. But in any case, so now we're down to Zedekiah, the last king and the final and third siege, and that's the one that's going to be so vivid in Jeremiah's writings in what we call the Lamentations. There's finally a point where the governor appointed is also assassinated. Zedekiah is confusing to many people because he's a son of Josiah. There is a son by the name of Josiah, by the name of Mataniah. He was the full brother of Eliakim, the one whose name was changed to Jehoiakim. 
But therefore, Metaniah is the uncle, in effect, of Jehoiachin, who was just deported. So it's his uncle that Nebuchadnezzar, he changes his name from Metaniah to Zedekiah and is put in charge as a vassal of Babylon, obviously. But he doesn't realize that he's really supposed to just stay, remain a vassal. And so uh, his shenanigans result in the final third siege. And by the way, this whole business was Zedekiah and his name changing and so forth has been confirmed by archaeological finds called the Babylonian Chronicles and also the Lahish letters. Uh, you can check this out. Interesting enough, these complexities are confirmed in the archaeological finds. But Zedekiah is a weak guy. He actually tries to be a friend to Jeremiah, but doesn't accomplish much. He's vacillating. He's a puppet, really, of Babylon. His first string officials are really Jeremiah's problem, in a sense, because they're all pro-Egypt. And they keep feeding the, the, the idea to Zedekiah that he can, he can make it if they want to rebel. And so the official policy should have been pro-Babylon, but the officials are really pro-Egypt. How often it is in governments where the, the leader may have one view, but the people that really determine the policy are the establishment underneath him. We find that true in a, a number of closer situations. Anyway, uh, it's these officials, the first tier guys, that give Jeremiah a hard time because of his pro-Babylonian and also because of his theology. Both his politics are wrong from their point of view, and also his his theological position is conservative. And so the 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 second it's the second tier that say that uh, Jeremiah is treasonous, and uh, that's where Jeremiah gets in all kinds of difficulties, even being thrown into prison. Now Zedekiah lets him out of prison into a courtyard for a while because he's trying to be his friend, but he doesn't really uh, have any backbone here. So in the fourth year of Zedekiah, they plot against Babylon with the kings of Moab, Edom, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon. These are other tributaries around. As they plot, Jeremiah denounces that plot in his writings. Nothing happens. The ninth year of Zedekiah, he conspires against Pharaoh Hophra against Nebuchadnezzar. In this period, Jeremiah urges, again, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar, because that's God's instrument of judgment. And uh, Zedekiah tries to support Jeremiah, but uh, he's nothing very effective. His enemies are, are the ones that really treat him badly. And so... Nebuchadnezzar takes a dim view of all of this, so he finally has had enough of it, and he lays the third siege. The Jews celebrate that siege every year on the 9th of Av. It's astonishing to realize how many horrible, major milestones, negative milestones against Israel always occur on the 9th of Av. It's become an idiom in their culture. And this, of course, is one of the biggest ones of those. Interesting thing I have to include here is both Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophecy about Zedekiah. One says that he will die in Babylon. The other says that he will never see the Babylonian captivity. And that is so conspicuous that all the observers are taunting the prophets, saying, you guys can't even get your story straight. Well, (laughs) when the city finally falls, Zedekiah tries to escape, but he's caught and he's chained. They slaughter all his sons in front of him, So that will be the last thing he'll remember. Then they put his eyes out and carry him off to Babylon in chains. And what did Ezekiel say? He shall not see it, though he shall die there. How vivid, how precise prophecy is. One of the great lessons you learn as you take your Bible seriously is that God means what he says and says what he means. And you quickly earn a respect for even the commas, so to speak. Pay attention to what this text is really saying. Well, Jeremiah is forced, strangely, into exile in Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar appoints Gedaliah as a governor. 
He's murdered by Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, who is a, of the Davidic house. Big plot, assassination, comes to nothing. But the rebels, the people who were involved in that mess, they flee to Egypt and they force Jeremiah to go with them. And Jeremiah and his secretary, Baruch, have to, are forced to go with him. So there's a big irony here. Here's Jeremiah, who has always preached against Egypt, pro-Babylon, is now forced into exile in Egypt. Now there is a tradition, this is where we get confused because there's a tradition that he was stoned in Egypt. Some rabbis have that tradition. Another rabbinical tradition is that once Nebuchadnezzar defeats, finally defeats Egypt, which he does, that when that's all over, he takes Jeremiah back to Babylon. And Jeremiah finally dies in comfort in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. That's another tradition. None of these, there's different scholars have different views. Now Jeremiah's personal background, he's son of Hilkiah, who was of the priestly family, and many scholars believe it was from that family that the Torah was found, incidentally. Uh, that Hilkiah is the same Hilkiah that found the book of the law in the temple in 2 Kings 22. And there's some descendancies here, uh, but uh, apparently he had property because Jeremiah is engaged in a major real estate transaction as part of the episodes here. So we think he came, he's from Anathoth, not Jerusalem. And that may be one of the reasons, one of the reasons he isn't that visible in some of the early stages here because he's an Anathoth, which is outside some miles. He was not married. He was denied to be able to be married by God. He had, even though he's a man of means, he was committed by God to the path that he stuck to all the way through. And he was called for 40 years as a prophet. His closest companion was Baruch, the son of Neriah, who was the scribe and secretary, amanuensis, if you will. And that's, this is the context, the background, in which he wrote these famed lamentations to commemorate the fall of the city. It's obviously the fall of cities very fresh in his mind, it's after the fall, but very shortly after the fall that they apparently were written. And his major premises that we're going to explore here is only faithfulness to God can guarantee a nation's security. They were looking to the wrong places for their security. And it's suggested that his message is desperately needed for us today, or we may be faced with the same trauma that faced Jeremiah, the decay and the demise of his beloved city. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Lamentations. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.